I'm Evelyn, and I'm a geoholic. How about that? Super interesting music. That's all I got to say. It's a little love like it. Uh, love little it. Irish, Spanish, all kinds of stuff going on there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think it's our first Panamanian. Is that right? Uh, musical artist. I, I can I can guarantee that it is the first Panamanian musician. And I'm going to let you introduce here in just a second. Oh, I'm dying. I know you are. <laughs> so listen, if you are listening to this being episode 139, um, you've got a heaping helping of geoholics this past week because this will be the third episode that we released in one week oh yeah 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 because of the timing of it producer sean over here was on vacation i i was uh there was a little bit of technical difficulties on the episode two weeks ago so took us a little bit to get through but patched it all together released it and then we've got another one that'll go tomorrow probably tomorrow well it'll be three days ago by the time this is out right yeah <laughs> yes exactly back but, to the future uh, back to the back future, to the future exactly and that voice of course is dr nick how are you my friend i'm doing great i i'm still trying to contemplate am i ready to go dance in the rain or strap on a broadsword and go fight in braveheart that song was awesome it really is right it kind of gets the heart pumping just a little bit why do you have to pick one <laughs> Yes, exactly. Why do you have to pick one? Um, and Nick, I saw on LinkedIn, uh, you're at the Esri Users Conference. How was that? It was fantastic. So it was the first meeting back after, you know, the COVID pandemic has been striking heavy handedly. Uh, the, the conference brought in about 14,000 people uh, in the flesh. Wow. That's crazy. And uh, about 10,000 plus people virtually. Um, everybody there was vaccinated. Everybody was following good protocol. So everybody was safe and it was, it was great. It was great to see everybody again. I think uh, the general consensus was everybody was just kind of tired of being locked up and they, everybody was just ready to get out and talk geospatial. And yeah, it was, it was a good time. Uh, as I was talking with Sean before the show, uh, probably the most pocket protectors in San Diego at one given moment. There's a lot of nerdy mappiness, uh, you know, going down, but yeah, if you've never been there, highly recommend it to any listeners. Yeah, and based on what I saw, it was like a who's who of mapping. Really, it was uh, it was cool to see some faces and pictures, you know, that I've only talked to a number of times. Um, like Bruce, our buddy Bruce Buxton, as a matter of fact, he had some really good posts. Yeah, crazy enough, I literally uh, his flight came through Austin, so I get on the plane with my wife, and there's Bruce, and so we're like Bruce, and everybody's like, "Is he famous?" <laughs> you <laughs> well, know, yeah, and we're is. like, "We got to take a picture with the gray beard." Oh, uh, and that was that was. That's a good sign for good things to come. That is funny. That is funny. I'll tell you what the highlight of my last few days has been. um, I watched a, like, I don't know, a show about the deep, like the deep, deepest part of the oceans, right? That has like hardly ever been explored. And now, of course, we have ways of getting down there and exploring and there's all these crazy creatures down there and this and that. So I got to thinking, would you rather live in the deep or would you rather live in space if you had your choice? Not on an island person, not on, not like on a planet, just in the space station or in the deep station. Uh, I think I'd go with the, the deep station just because mm. there's all kinds of stuff. Like there's creatures that have never seen light yeah. and no one's ever seen them before. And it's, it would be very, it'd be a lot new and refreshing and 
just being in space, you know, obviously it get boring after a little while. Great view. Yeah, but you're just yeah. looking at the same rock over and over yeah. again. Like this, at least new stuff is going to float by, and you never yeah. know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll be curious, Nick. Well, how, what's your answer to that? Going to get nerdy. So one of my favorite mappers of all time was um, a lady named Marie Tharp, and she was the first person to map the, uh, the ocean floor of the Atlantic. And fun fact, less of the ocean floor is mapped than the moon. And so I'm going to go with the place that has the least amount of mapping. So I'm going to go to the depths under the sea. And plus, Shark Week's been on yep. recently. And so I'm like watching these weird little creatures of the deep, you know. So I'm going to go with the deep. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm in the same boat. Our uh, our guest this uh, week is Patricia Solis. And I'm going to loop her into this conversation early because I'm curious what her answer is to that question. I'm with all of you. I would deep, go to the deep. And, yeah. I, and Nick, I don't know if you saw our good friend out there at Esri, Deep Sea Dawn, Dawn Wright, who is mm-hmm. responsible for really? a lot of the mapping at Esri for Under the Ocean. She's like the new generation. Wow. That, deep Sea so. Dawn? That's her name. We got to get Deep Sea Dawn. Dawn on the podcast. Deep Sea Dawn. Yeah. Anybody <laughs> with that name? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Shoe in. Shoe in. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Awesome. Okay. Sean, now's your opportunity to tell us about that opening number. Uh, I'm going to butcher some of these words, but here we go. Uh, that was Ruben Blades and a song called Primo Genio. Ruben Blades is a Panamanian musician, singer, composer, actor, activist, and politician, performing musically most often in the salsa and Latin jazz genres. As a songwriter, Blades brought the lyrical sophistication of Central American Nueva Canción and Cuban Nueva Trova as well as experimental tempos and politically inspired Son Cubano Salsa to his music, creating Thinking Persons Dance Music. He won 10 Grammy Awards out of 17 nominations and 12 Latin Grammy Awards. Wow. And the only thing I want to add is he has 4 million monthly listeners. That's insane. And now I feel bad that I've never heard of him. Gosh, where have I been? You know, I ask myself that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's ever been. Yeah, but I, I gotta, I gotta learn how to salsa. I think. I mean, there's it's there's prob- classes out there. there I'm there sure the is. lovely Megan would love it if you took her to a salsa dancing. She class. would hate that idea because <laughs> honestly, neither one of us has a bit of rhythm. It would be ugly. Hey, but you would you would enjoy it together. Anytime I see him doing it on TV, I'm like, whoa, that's art. Really I, I, th- I think you got more in you than you, than you think. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. All right. We're, of course, back in the Diamondback Land Surveying Studio. Some big news. Uh, Trent Keenan just notified me the other day. We've been talking about it for a long time, probably six months or so, that um, the Geoholics and Mentoring Mondays had a barrel of Old Elk whiskey Ooh. aging. And it is finally ready to be bottled. So there are going to be a limited number of Mentoring Monday and Geoholics whiskey bottles. Are you saying are you whiskey, saying my course. name is going to be on a whiskey bottle? Your name, actually, Dr. Nick's name is on the whiskey bottle. It's going to be quite the collector's item. Wow. No question. I no mean, question. as far as uh, life goals go, this one came early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's uh, Old Elk, and I think it's 112 proof, if oh, I remember nice. right. So it's going to be pretty exciting. So that should be showing up, uh, I don't know, probably in the next couple of weeks is my understanding. But uh, on that note, I have a gift for you, Sean. Oh, really? Yes. I think now's a good time to give it to you. Hold okay. on one second. Okay. Oh, it's even wrapped. It, well, yes, of course it's wrapped. Of course, of course it's wrapped. Oh, this is either going to be so, terrible or wonderful. You I don't remember? Know. You remember uh, Chicago Bob? Of course. Of course. We've talked about it a number of times. He's quite the craftsman. 
All right, what do we have here? So. Ooh, it is a crafted wooden shot glass with my alma mater on it. And even your name. And my name. Yes. You can't lose it. It's only yours. Wow. How uh, cool is that, huh? That is actually really special. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. You got to show it, Sean. Let me see. That's awesome. Yeah, wow. Was it Syracuse? Is, uh, North it looks Carolina like State. Syracuse, doesn't it? I thought the same thing when he when he pulled when he gave it to me. I'm like, oh my god, he put Syracuse on there. <laughs> <laughs> Got confused with Megan, but uh, yeah. So Nick, if you ever make it to town, we'll get you one of those. Yeah, actually, I can't wait. More reasons to come. No, I can't I'm wait good. to sip a little bit of the uh, Geoholics oh, whiskey out of this guy. Yeah, we'll have to uh, do a toast to Chicago Bob. Absolutely. Thank you, Chicago Bob. That's very special. All right. Gosh, awesome. With that wood, I mean, it should like take the flavors of that you know first couple whiskeys. So, oh yeah, you know, you smell good. It's important to get the right whiskey in there on the first couple first couple shots. Uh, look forward to it. It'll be fun. All right, shout out to this week's highlighted friend of the program. We have Nettleman Land Consultants, Inc. Producer Sean, you got this? Uh, Of course. Nettleman Land Consultants, or NLC. Uh, NLC Test Prep began in 2012 as Dr. Tony Nettleman decided to branch out into his own business and education services. Dr. Nettleman is a part of a long line of land surveyors and began to show the profession at age 14. NLC Prep provides various study tools and courses for the NCEES and state-specific land surveyor exams. NLC's NCEES and state-specific test preparation programs are always up to date with the latest study materials. Visit nlcprep.com and improve your odds of passing your land survey exams with videos, handouts, workbooks, quizzes, and more. And let them know you're a geoholic. Absolutely. There is a friend of the program, geoholic listener discount. So, and I can tell you from ex- firsthand experience that the program is amazing. I know three people that are using it right now to prep for their various exams and they're very pleased with it. And I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to be successful taking their exams on the very first shot as a result of Dr. Nettleman's uh, test prep courses. So, uh, okay, moving on time for the liquid deaths. Weekly words of wisdom. Our guest this evening, Patricia, has had liquid death for the very first time. What do you think of liquid death, Patricia? It's wonderful. It is amazing, I have right? Lime flavored sparkling. Yep. It's perfect. Yep, yep. Um, she was a little taken back by the name. She's like, that's water? Are you sure? I think she probably thought it was some sort of alcoholic beverage, of course. But nope, it is water and some of the best water you'll ever have. Drinking out of an ice cold can, there's nothing like it. So here is this week's weekly words of wisdom. Okay, the truth is that stress doesn't come from your boss, your kids, your spouse, traffic jams, health challenges, or other circumstances. It comes from your thoughts about your circumstances. Hmm. Interesting. I love it. I have been struggling with stress lately. I do tell. And Sean actually recommended doing some, um, uh, what you got? Meditation. Meditation. And turn me on to an app. What's the name of the app? I don't have it open. Ten, uh, 10% happier. 10% happier. And I tried it for the first time today because I thought I was about ready to lose my mind. And I got to tell you, it made a difference. What did you do? Like 10, 15 minutes? 10 like minutes. That? Yeah. I went to an office, turned off the lights, did a 10-minute session, and came out much more relaxed. That's good. So, absolutely. I just want to thank you for uh, turning me on to that. I think it's something I'm going to work into my everyday routine. Uh, I've, I started about three or four years ago and it has been a positive thing in my life. Yeah, for sure. How about you, Dr. Nick? Have you done any meditation? 
definitely. So did a lot of martial arts growing up. Um, also, you know, the, you know, the faith based, like praying, meditating, self-reflection, introspection sort of thing. But recently, coincidentally, I've been reading um, author Brene Brown's new book called Atlas of the Heart. And um, in the book, she talks about using vocabulary to describe emotions so that when we can understand our emotions better, we can impact our behaviors better. And she was just talking in the book about stress and anxiety. So it's cool to, you know, read something like that. Um, she's done a lot of research, you know, tens of thousands of students over the years that have filled out these tests and surveys. And if you've not heard of Brene Brown, she, she's an amazing writer. I think she's a New York Times bestseller. I think she's a professor at maybe University of Houston. But if you at all want to talk about emotions or she's also does a lot of stuff on vulnerability and stress, anxiety. Mm. Yeah, I highly recommend that to all our all our listeners out there. But uh, very easy read. It's really fun, too. Uh, it's not dry at all. Awesome. Awesome. Thank yeah, you, so thank you been, for that. been thinking about stress and anxiety myself recently and being overwhelmed. Yes. Yes. That describes me exactly the last week, I'd say. I was laying, I was telling Sean, I was laying in bed last night. I thought I was literally going insane. I had so many thoughts <laughs> pummeling my brain and things I needed to get done. And I, I got like three hours of sleep. So um, thank God for caffeine and Coors Light, of course, of course. Uh, and that, that quote is Andrew Bernstein. I want to make sure I give credit to that. Patricia, okay. have you Can't, done any meditation? No, but can't you know what's good for stress relief? Uh-oh. Salsa dancing. Ah. Uh, uh, yes. Mm. yes. She is, is not wrong. I'm not kidding. I'll hook you up. My okay. husband and I go all the time. All right. I'll help might, you out there. You might be onto something. Hmm. Salsa dancing and meditation. I am going to be unstoppable. Together. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. It's a fun day. Yes, for sure. All right. So as I mentioned, our guest this evening is Patricia Solis. We thank you for being here, of course. A little bit about Patricia. I might butcher this. I should have practiced. Born in Neodisha? Neodisha. Neodisha. <laughs> Not <laughs> even close. Easy. Damn it. Neodisha. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> Neo Deshay, Kansas. She attended Kansas State University, where she uh, achieved a bachelor's of science in physics, a BA in German, MA in geography, and she received her PhD from University of Iowa. Awesome. Ah. I uh, feel very... Uh, Undereducated. Her hobbies include traveling and trying to combine her work travel with personal. She loves cooking and eating, walking in new places, beach time, and as mentioned already, salsa dancing. She currently is a uh, research professor, right, at ASU, Go Devils, and is appointed the executive director of the Knowledge Exchange for Resilience, which we're going to get to in a second. And her passions include working with young people and generating knowledge and science for and with the public. Patricia, welcome to the Geoholics. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Uh, super excited to have you here. We got to talk about how this connection um, transpired. And it was through a mutual friend, Tim Hawthorne, of course, who is behind Geobus. Um, he was generous enough to make this introduction. I came over to your office one day. We met, we chatted, and that conversation went a bunch of different directions. But regardless, here we are. The fabulous Tim. He is such a special person. He and... really is. He really is. And of course, Dr. Nick is a, a friend of Tim's as well. And uh, following Tim on LinkedIn and other social media, he's doing some really cool stuff. Really? Got the GeoBus going now. I was fortunate enough to see it a few months ago when I was in Florida. And uh, just so cool. So cool. We got to figure out a way to get one out here. 
Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Whatever we need to do, we can work together on that. Um, so we usually do an icebreaker right now. We call it the Trimble Pro Point Icebreaker. I don't know if you got a chance to read this or not, but this is a good one. What movie do you wish you could watch again for the first time? Do you have one? It's hard to it say. It is tough. But the one, the, actually the first movie that came to mind when I read that question, and it's probably because I'm talking to you all, the movie Lion. Lion. Have you seen this movie? I've not seen it. It's called Lion. It's a, a, a story. It's a true story sure. about, about a person's actual experience about a, a kid in India who got lost somehow and from his separated from his family. And then he was adopted by a family in Australia. And, oh. you know, fast forward 25 years later, he's thinking about where he came from. Hmm. And in the movie, it's spoiler alert, I suppose. Um, but in the movie, he uses Google Maps wow. and the satellite imagery and his memory of these places that he holds as a huh. child. And he actually ends up locating where he came from. Wow. Fabulous movie called How Lion. interesting is that? Lion. Love to uh, uh, Dev, remember that one. Very uh, interesting. Dev Patel and uh, Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Okay, of course. How about you, Sean? Um, you know, after that story, mine doesn't seem like very. I wait to hear mine. I'm actually. I I Die Hard. Oh, the original. Original Die Hard. Yes, that is a great movie. If there was a time, I've seen it so many times. Obviously, everyone has, but. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it, I'm starting to see a resemblance. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> well, it's it's it, it, interesting because my uh, you know on Gmail you have a picture on there, and yeah. like three or four years ago I had this. I was wearing the sweater, this wool sweater that's just like the sweater that Bruce Willis wears in the Die Hard. I think it's Die Hard Two, you know, where it's the yep. the snow one. Yep. And now that's still like even on my wife's phone, like. Oh, that's the, oh the, the icon when my, you know, we're text and, yeah. and phone calls. So that's funny. And I mean, I know it's a bald thing, but yeah, it's, that's awesome. I'm a I'll ask him to see that picture next time I see her. How about you, Dr. Nick? Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, star Wars. A new hope. Mm. Great one. Great one. Uh, Force Gump for me. Really? Yeah. I love that movie. Well, is that, I mean, it's one of those that when you're flipping through the channels, yep. you see it on, you have, you have to watch it for I, a little bit. It, that and The Other Guys are like the two movies I never pass by. Um, I would say that and Shawshank Redemption. Like Another, every time you see it, yes. you always stop and watch it. Yeah, And Talladega Nights. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like Gone with the Wind, a River Wind. I know, I know, I know. But that's a great question. So thank you guys for your answers. Appreciate it. So, Patricia, let's focus on you just a little bit here. Um, how in the world did you get into geography? By accident, really. Yeah. I think a lot of people happen on geography because it's not something I think that we promote very much. But, uh. you know, I, I always loved, uh, you know, learning about new places, new people. I grew up in that really small town called Neodeche. There's about 3,000 people in that wow. town. Oh, wow. And I've always had the curiosity. If I wanted to see the world, right? Mm. I wanted to expand my world. But when I went to college, you know, you don't know what to study. I was always curious about science and math. And, and I ended up starting off with mechanical engineering. Oh. Hey, and, that's yep. what my, my bachelor's yep. is in. So I, I started off with that, but then I ended up switching over to physics. I really liked the philosophy, uh, you know, and in addition to the math, and I was also able to take a lot of my language and music courses as well. Um, but by the end of my program, I was really 
wondering what am I going to do with this degree in physics? I can't really see myself in the basement throwing photons at each other. I mean, <laughs> what do you do with that? So I s did what any normal person would do. I escaped to Switzerland on a study abroad oh, wow, program. Awesome. I was very fortunate to have, you know, a fellowship to pay for that. Um, I could not afford that without something like that. And uh, I did speak some German, but they don't really speak German in Switzerland. If you've ever been there, it's a, it's a different kind of German. It's Swiss German and... and huh. um, it was hard to hang with some of the courses, so I was just taking a lot of electives. I'm like, I'm going to use this time. I ended up, <coughs> I took medical physics, I took biophysics, and then I took a geophysics class. Wow. And I remember walking down this hallway, and it was like artwork on the walls. They had remote sensing imagery that was just beautiful, and they mm. were using this technology and these images to save people in the Alps. They were modeling avalanches and predicting avalanches to save people in the Alps. And I was like, what? You can do that wow. with this? This is amazing. I want in. Huh. And from there on, it was the rest is history. So, so I cool. came back and um, finished the physics degree and then went on to do my master's in geography. Wow. Sounds exactly like uh, Dr. Nick's story. I was just going to say, you meant to say, not the rest is history, the rest was geography. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there it is. Good one. <laughs> uh, is there anything you did not study in college? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what geographers do, though, right? That's, I mean, that's true, yeah. yeah. A yeah. little bit of everything and So true, exactly. Curiosity. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, we were talking before the show that you just got back from a month-long trip uh, in Panama. That's right. And that's where your husband's from. That's right. How, how did you guys meet? Well, we met when we were at the University of Iowa. Oh, he, okay. he was there. Um, he um, had a Fulbright and was there. And I think he was known as the Panamanian because I think there's only one Panamanian in all of Iowa. Mm -hmm. Very few. And uh, I actually evaluated him. Oh, boy. He was the, um, part of an NSF project, and I was working with the evaluation team, and he got a good evaluation. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. That's how we met. <laughs> oh, that's great. And we ended up living there in Panama for, for nine years, wow. and our kids grew okay. up there. But we were just back visiting and yeah. um, like to spend time there every year. That is cool. Nice. So you have some family there, obviously. Yes. And when you go back, you can visit. And that's right. A month in Panama, that sounds pretty good. That's right. You said the weather's pretty good this time of year, huh? Weather is cooler than in Arizona. Yeah. And uh, a little humid, sure, and rainy, but we we really love it. Awesome, awesome. Nick, did you have some? Yeah. Can I ask you a total random question I, off script, but geography based? Yeah. What are, what are the what's the average Panamanian view of like Americans? You know, we we think like Teddy Roosevelt and creating the Panama Canal and that sort of stuff. Like, just curious, is it a negative view, a positive view, kind of in the middle, or? Yeah, you know, in all the time I lived there, I've had on the. Ex major hole very positive hmm. um you know they the canal they know a lot of americans from uh you know the canal and people who worked in the canal all, up until the year 2000 when the canal was turned back over to panamanians uh but there's just i've never really encountered negativity whereas you know maybe in some other countries you kind of get the Yankee go home kind mm -hmm. of attitude, but I never really experienced that there. Yeah. They're very warm and welcome. That's good to know. So if we need to escape somewhere, we can go to Panama. I think there's a lot of expats there, isn't there? There were more. Okay. Um, I think when uh, the U.S. was running the canal, but, uh, you know, that was now 20 years ago. Uh, true. Yeah. So I think it's, it's uh, they did turn the canal zone area into an, and sort of an international campus. There's mm. a lot of international um headquarters there like mm -hmm. UN headquarters for the region and so in that area you'll still see 
some expats kind of around okay. that area, but not so much around the country. Is the Panama Canal one of the wonders of the world? I believe so. I think it is, right? If it's not, it should be. Yeah. I think it is. Like, is there seven? Not the eight? ancient. How many ones are there? The, uh, is it seven now? Seven wonders of the world. Grand Canyon. I mean, there's no way in well, high they, Well, they have natural wonders and then. Oh. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure the Panama Canal falls in one of those categories, like the Great Wall and yeah, that kind of thing. Cool stuff. Um, okay. So this knowledge exchange for resilience that sounds very complicated. Can you uh, simplify that for us? Yeah, it sounds complicated, but you know, we as a society experience shock and stress, mm. as you were talking about, not just on an individual ding, ding. level, but on a community level, yeah. right? And uh, this initiative was started by ASU, Dr. Crow himself actually, and a relationship with the Virginia G. Piper Trust, a local philanthropy, because we want to bring the university resources to ask and answer the right questions that are going to help us be more resilient to that kind, those kinds of shocks and stress in society. What good is it mm. when we have our public institutions or public universities creating this knowledge if we can't use it to prevent some of the problems and get a little upstream of some of those problems. Yeah. And, and that's really what it's about. And the knowledge exchange part is that we need to do this in partnership with our community, with um, organ different kinds of organizations. So we do a different kind of research. Mm. It's um, very embedded. I typically don't drive the questions. Um, I'm listening to what are the questions from the community. And then uh, we reach back to all of the university to be able to try to answer those questions. That's that's the mechanism, and as a geographer, actually, it's it's probably um, one of the best disciplines I can say. Maybe I'm a little biased, but to, to try to be very responsive to that kind of research, because uh, you know, there's there's a, a an ability to kind of meld the social science and natural science and and environmental science, and most of our real world problems have to do with those kinds of things. They're not discipline based. They're very much complex and integrated across those. So I feel it's it's a, it's a big advantage. Yeah, no question. And one of those things, and we talked about it when we, uh, when we first met at your office, which by the way, I forgot to mention your office is that building is absolutely beautiful. It's yeah. one of the newer buildings on campus, right? That's right. Uh, you guys have only been there for how long? Actually just since January. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Just since the first year, absolutely beautiful and impressive. Yeah, they inaugurated as the Walton Center for Planetary Health. It's right on the corner of rural and university. And mm -hmm. we are very privileged to be there and yeah. Uh, with a really great group of people. Great facility. And one of the projects that we talked about, I remember that, is some, something you were passionate about um, and something you're working on currently is combating heat in Arizona and how mapping ties into that. And it's really funny. We were, Sean and I were, uh, were talking today about um, like pavement design, right? And how there's some areas in Phoenix that have like white pavement. I have no idea this ties into what you're doing, but it has white pavement to, in theory, cool down those areas, correct? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's painted white, so painted it white. traps a little less heat and mm. gives off a little less heat. Gotcha, they, gotcha. And it's it's a pilot program. They've got some sensors in there to test, you know, measure temperature and kind of mm -hmm. see if it. And it does have some effect, like what the long term is and cost and all that. There, that's what we're they're working through now. Yeah. So I have no idea if that ties into your research at all, but I would be curious to hear more. Yeah, we, we do work with some of the researchers that are studying that, um, like mm. Jenny Van Oss and Dave Hondula and uh, the city of Phoenix. They're, they're experimenting with that. But of course, as you, you can understand, it takes a lot of knowledge to un see if that is really going to work in a real-world situation. Um, so I think there's still, as yeah, you say, yeah. some design questions that we have to think about. Where should it go? Right. 
where should it not go? And, um, and then, you know, if, if it's a half a degree, is that really going to do anything or, you know, what's, what's the long-term impacts and yeah. what, what, what cost and benefit kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So what is yeah. the objective of your study then? Well, we do focus a lot on heat because mm-hmm. if we're, you're focused on the stress and, and the shock in this part of the world, heat is a threat multiplier. Mm. It, it, you know, it makes everything worse mm-hmm. um, if you already have a bad situation. So we, we end up, um, you know, looking to see who are the most vulnerable and what are, what of our systems mm. are the most vulnerable. Um, you know, I actually made a breakthrough, I think, in understanding uh, with our partners about mm-hmm. how we can address the strongest vulnerability using maps, actually. Mm. Um, at the very beginning, we didn't really know where to start. And so what do I do? I start with the map. Yep. Um, so I was able to get information about where there are 80 different organizations that, that work in Maricopa County to provide utility assistance. So to give you know relief for air conditioning right. during the summer to people who can't end up paying for that. Um, so I got their data sets for over several years. Uh, we mapped where people were receiving help. Hmm. And then... We also mapped where are people suffering the most? Where are people dying from heat-associated deaths? Mm. And there's hundreds of people every year in this area who die from heat deaths. And so we were able to get data from the county. When you overlay those two things, where are people getting assistance and needing assistance, and where are the deaths occurring, you see certain patterns. In parts of the city, those things coincide. Mm. Because people who need it, you know, they're the ones suffering. But there was this part of the metro area that had a lot of heat associated deaths and no assistance really and i was like what the heck is this i brought it back to the organizations you know in this conversation with them and nobody could really answer that that's not their constituents they weren't obviously helping them we're trying to figure that out the next day i'm driving down the road and of course i'm using my navigation with the satellite image on not Mm -hmm. the road image and i noticed that in the same part of town there's like this white splotch and i go what is that? That was just where we were looking. Zoomed in, it's row after row after row of mobile home parks. Oh. And you can see the the white roofs, no trees. Yeah. You know, tightly packed together, basically ten cans on a parking mm. lot, and you could yep. really see it. And so that sparked the idea. Let's go test this out mathematically, statistically, collect all the data. We even went out into the parks and started measuring and seeing what is the vulnerability. And it turns mm. out it's true. People who live in this type of housing are six to eight times more likely to die of heat-associated deaths. Wow. And so the map helped us see that, uh, know, whereas we never hmm. would have really – I think it was kind of hidden in plain sight. It's kind of right. one of those aha-duh moments. Yeah. yeah, super cool. Nick, did you have some? Oh, I, I mean, just that, it, that all of this um, rings true. Uh, so she uh, – Dr. Solis is not giving herself enough credit. Kerr on ASU campus is one of the biggest, most pronounced, probably famous in the last few years initiatives that ASU as a university has undergone. undergone. And she mentioned very quickly that uh, Dr. Michael Crow actually is, uh, is kind of one of his uh, babies or brainchild, uh, who if you don't know that, if you're a listener, out there, uh, Dr. Michael Crow is the president of ASU and has been voted so many accolades on being, you know, this revolutionary um, in the academic space on bringing, and, and you can see Kerr is a great example of bringing real world solutions to academia and research. Um, 
a lot of the school of earth and space exploration and geography all tied into that. So it's really neat to actually be doing this interview because, you know, I've been hearing about this. I know several of your colleagues, I worked um, recently in the Mesa area with the West Mesa community heat action project that was called the, the cool Island projects where in a similar vein, we were combating and mitigating heat issues, but through a study of trees. And so it was tied into, we had a, a grant, um, from the university uh, office or university exchange, um, Melissa McCon, and and so basically we were able to plant trees or in the process of planting trees to mitigate the heat for the most marginalized. So everything you're saying is just right up my alley, and I I, I love hearing it. And she's not giving herself enough kudos. What they're doing over there is absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Nick, <laughs> um, for saying it, that. I have to mention another geographer who is our director. That's Libby Wentz, who's uh, been at ASU for you know decades and um, mastermind behind all of this. Dr. Crow actually entrusted her with um, spelling out the design, and she's the one who recruited me. So geographers oh, wow. all the way. That's awesome. When you're doing these studies and you're like finding like heat islands and stuff like that, um, do you work with like uh, community planners as well? Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we do work with cities a lot, and usually that's going to be the planning department. Um, it, it would also be, you know, social services, um, the transportation people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, even in Mesa, the, the fire department, the people who go out and respond, the, the kind of first responders, because in the, some of the heat um, yep. moments, you've got um, the short-term kind mm -hmm. of emergency response. But I, you know, what we're trying to do, and I know, Nick, you're doing this too, trying to really push the, the limits to get ahead of the curve, right? We, we need better urban design. We need better – we need to design our cities better. We need to think about our cities better. And I think that the opportunity for solutions is – you know, just like heat is a threat multiplier, I think mm -hmm. it can be a solutions multiplier because mm -hmm. we need better housing anyway. Mm -hmm. We need better transportation systems anyway. Yeah. But if heat can be kind of that stimulus to say, we need to be more innovative than mm -hmm. ever now because we see our climate changing. This is a big shock already. We have hundreds of people um, every year who, who suffer the, the worst fate. Uh, yeah. You know, let's let's build our cities better. And what better excuse do we have? Yeah, I, I oh. Can I jump in super fast? I, I uh, just on that regard there um, recently, I read an article about Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia right now is, uh, have you read about this? The, their big, so they're planning a city that will be 170 kilometers long. Imagine a one city, one road city. And, and their whole concept is that when we build a metro area that like grows out geocentrically, it causes that heat, urban heat island where if you have something long, I, I, mm. did you did you mm. see? Did anybody else see this? I, I, I saw it. it. It looks like it's like a football field wide and you know, a couple hundred feet tall. And how, how long did you say? Like miles and miles, or 130 miles, yeah, 130 miles. miles long. And it's wow. just and it's just like built in a strip in the desert. But and mm. like like it says, if you build it this way instead of like out yep. like a circle, then you can better control some of the, the temperature stuff and airflow and efficiency and a whole. And I just, it reminds me of that train show where like, <laughs> what's that? What's that train show where it's like in the future. And then they just keep going around. Yeah, It's train. like this big, huge train. Everyone lives on the train and never <laughs> understand. Snow yeah. Snowpiercer. Yes. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of is just stationary, but it's, massive so it's Interesting. not not quite the same but, but to that point it's re rethinking outside of the box cliche speak but like how do we redesign the city to be better functioning for the future how do we mitigate these problems 
Yeah, and I love that you're mentioning too, Nick, another one of my passions that you can get inspiration from people around the world mm. by staying connected. It's not just about your own local knowledge. It's about exchanging that with people from many other places that you feel like you may not have um, a connection to at the beginning, but you dig deeper and you can kind of see your common problems and, and share common solutions. On the on the I'm curious on the the land planning side, you know, like we need to design better cities, or that's what you said. Like, so you know, working with the the city planners, like, what is one thing you could say is like the most common or a recommendation, or what's the one thing you wish land planners would do more mm. that you could, you know, do you know what I'm asking there? Yeah, I understand what you're asking. I f I feel like uh, the the real crux of the issue that would kind of loosen things up right now is more in the private sector because we need more affordable housing. And in the state of Arizona, there is a law that is uh, in place that is not in many other states that actually prohibits the, the local com communities from compelling developers to create affordable housing. In many oh. other s communities, mm. if you do luxury housing, you're also required to put in uh, lower cost housing in some other place. And then our, you know, we don't have enough mixed use. Yeah. You know, some some of our mm. policies and incentives for the development and the developers, and you know, it's 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 a system, right? It's not just the cities. It's not just the private sector. It's not just the homeowners. It's not just the landlords. You know, mm -hmm. it's all of the above. And I think we need to kind of get our act together and do better. Hmm. Yeah, and something that I have a soft spot in my heart for, and I've mentioned a number of times, is the homeless population. And there are so many of them, you know, this time of year that, you know, end up, you know, dying as a result of, you know, their circumstances. And I don't know how you fix that. That's a whole other conversation. But, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's sad, for sure. Yeah, housing. Um, housing, yep. you know, Shelter. Mm, mm, uh, yep. You know, just think about this. If you had a hurricane come to your city and kill 200 people, you may want to do something. What if that hurricane came without mm. fail every single year? Interesting. Mm. But we're not doing anything in the same scale as mm. you would, you know, build the levees or whatever you would do. We don't think about it in the same way. And our systems, to be fair, are not the same. You know, FEMA sure. does not consider extreme heat one of the natural hazards, even though it kills more than um, flooding, mm. earthquakes, mm. tornadoes combined. Wow. Yeah, wow. But it, that is it's interesting. technically not one of the Stafford Act mm -hmm. hazards. So we can't activate our systems in that way. Gotcha. So, um, you touched on, you know, the, the, the global ties and that type thing. So something else I gleaned from your uh, your bio was this Global Futures Laboratory. What is that exactly? Well, the Global Fu we're part of the Global Futures Laboratory. Okay, gotcha. It's, it's, okay. Uh, it's, a, it's comprised of um, many scores of different units. I don't know the exact number of, of units and centers and initiatives like ours. But the basic idea is to pull together a vision to uh, look at what is going to come in the future, not just here, but around the world, and try to answer and get ahead of some of those solutions. There's, you know, all sorts of technology climate solutions. There's policy, social, science solutions, and it's sort of a multidisciplinary kind yeah. of a laboratory to say what is coming down the pike and what yeah. do we need to do about this on, as, a, as a planet. Gotcha. Now, when I was at your office visiting with you, I met a young lady who was getting ready to take a trip to, was it like Ecuador or something like that? Where was she going? And she was working on some GIS project. I thought it had to do with like electricity or something. Well, yeah, I've been working with Elena on a project Elena, uh, in, yep. in um, I can't remember exactly where she was going, but <laughs> uh, but we've been working on projects in, in um, 
in Sierra Leone on rural electrification. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are many people around the world that aren't even represented on the map. In fact, there's a billion people on the planet who are not represented on any map. I know it's hard to believe that that's true. Really? But Crazy. places like, you know, cities grow very fast. Mm. In informal settlements, you might call them slums. Um, people uh, moving and, and, you know, population growth. And we're not keeping pace with charting those kinds of areas in some parts of the world. And those are the most vulnerable parts. And those are some of the most vulnerable people. So um, that's what... Uh, we try to remedy with the program called Youth Mappers that I started at, when I was at Texas Tech several years ago with mm-hmm. colleagues from uh, West Virginia University and George Washington University and support from USAID. And basically, we want to activate students all around the world to help put the m- most vulnerable people on the map. Um, mapping buildings, mapping roads, mapping amenities, tagging what's there, um, you know, some people call it the Starbucks effect. Okay. So if there's not a Starbucks there, it might not be on the map. Mm. <laughs> there's not an economic incentive for <laughs> mapping and charting this area. So um, those are the places that, that we really need to pay attention to. There's an ethic of about it, of course, right? Um, we don't map, and you know, for example, refugee camps unless we're working with Doctors Without Borders or mm. um, the International Red Cross. People sure. who can actually use that data to not to make them more vulnerable. Um, when um, with the invasion of Ukraine, all crowdsourced mapping stopped, right? Do not map in Ukraine for people's safety and security so that you don't oh, okay. make people more vulnerable, sure. making oh, them visible. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But for the most part, you know, in development and humanitarian sense, uh, not being on the map is, is actually can be quite a scary thing because you're not considered in the development. You're not mm-hmm. considered in the response because you're not seen, you're not heard. Yep. And there's some people that don't want to be found. <laughs> they yeah. don't want to be, sure. you know, held accountable for anything or whatever. There's that group as well. Sure. Um, but the uh, the crowdsourcing, that mapping, I mean, that is the platform that Youth Mappers uses, correct? That's correct. And that's a free platform that anybody can can access, right? That's right. We use OpenStreetMap. Yep. That's the main platform that we use. We use all sorts of different tools and try to privilege open source tools. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, students need to learn everything. So proprietary tools, fine. And to the extent that we can keep data open, we we privilege open data. Mm-hmm. But OpenStreetMap is, is really the tool that we use the most because um, it's like the people's map. Sure. You sure. can you can put your own data up there uh, rel- relatively easy, but you can also download it. That's not something that you can do with all of the platforms. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You got something, Nick? Nope. I just, I'm nodding along. No, no, it's all good. Um, I was thinking back, um, I know there was a, a project maybe six or seven years ago kind of spoke to this and it was in Delhi. And uh, if you can think about in India, some of these cities, these metropolitan areas are just massive, right? Uh, maybe you've seen like a movie like Slumdog Millionaire or something like that. But um the, the process, and you'd like this, Kent, as a, as a land surveyor, the, the company went in with a mobile scanning backpack, mm. and their whole process was to do parcel mapping. And I'm like, oh, parcel mapping, you know, that's nothing. You know, in America, we have sprawl. It's easy to map a parcel. But imagine a city that builds on top of each other, but not in like a building vertically. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I hate to say this, but because I don't, I can't articulate it any better, but imagine a shack on top, you know, like a slum built on top of each other. And so there's no formal grade or ground. And so this, uh, it was 
part partially done with the university, but they and the city, but they walked all of these areas with a 3D mapping tool and and used 3D scanning to map this to inevitably create a three-dimensional parcel so that they could start to get demographic data about all of these super vulnerable people that they don't have any information about. And uh, I mean, that was years ago. So yeah, I know it's interesting to hear about these things. And I, I love the crowdsourcing kind of citizen science stuff. I mean, even Google was involved in it back in the day. You could go on and you could map out your island and they would, you know, through that open maps. Um, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, and, ma- and imagine if you don't know who's there, if you're the city, how do you know how much water, how many pipes to build, mm-hmm. where to build them, how much capacity, uh, what kind of services to bring? Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of really wonderful examples of that. And, uh, you know, and you were asking me about the example of, of rural electrification. We had our youth mapper students on motorcycle um, taking street view on their cell phones. And uh, with that street view imagery, you um, there's a tool called Mapillary. And with, uh, with that tool, it's basically the same, um, you know, facial recognition sof- mm-hmm. software as computer vision as, you know, you use with Facebook, right? You can tell which pick out which ones are utility poles from those images. And from there, you can map where is the electrical system now and then where are the buildings Uh. and roads without electricity. And so with those maps, we're working with the uh, Energy Ministry of Energy to help them accelerate development, right? The first thing that they need to know if they come up with this big investment, we're going to, you know, electrify our rural places, where? Where do you go first? Where? Mm. <laughs> where do we need it and where do we have it? And right. yeah. answering that question and, and you, you need a lot of information. You can't send, I mean, you all are professionals. You can't send land surveyors everywhere in every corner and get all those answers. And sometimes you don't need that level of precision just yeah. to do the, the, the first pass estimates about where you, and how much investment to make. Well, easy. He's a land surveyor. So level of precision is okay. something that he struggles <laughs> with. Okay. One thing I don't struggle with is humility though. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, so like that map, that software you just mentioned, I mean, it sounds like that's probably geo-referenced as well. So when yes. they're, okay, gotcha. Yeah. That is so cool. What an amazing tool. Yeah. Wow. And then this, the, the youth, Right. Yep. Um, so Youth Mappers is really built around students leading projects. Uh, so the design is a chapter based design. So think like a university club. Mm-hmm. And there are now 327 universities in 67 countries who have Youth Mappers chapters in them. Wow. And they all take the initiative. We, we help provide training. We give fellowships. We do leadership training. We do webinars all the time and, and try to make sure they understand they teach each other how to do these tools and, and set up projects. And then, um, you know, they're the ones that are kind of leading some of these methodologies and putting this tool and that tool together and then driving the tech companies to help fill in the gaps about what tools are needed because these are the things that we're dealing with on the ground. So I'm, yeah. I'm really always inspired by them and impressed with them on how, how much motivation they have. They're not just data sensors, right? Sure. But they're part of that whole process. What about the funding for something like this? I mean, it sounds like a pretty massive movement. Um, is it self-funded somehow? Are there corporate sponsors? I mean, can, how can people get involved with this? Yes, we would always welcome corporate sponsors or any kind of sponsor. Um, we're actually uh, heavily funded by USAID, about 60% of our budget, and they're one of our co-founders because there's a lot of development and humanitarian demand for that. We have uh, some other federal agencies that have provided um, project funding, like 
National Science Foundation, um, USGS, um, some other kinds of small uh, projects or purpose-based funding. Our universities themselves also contribute a lot. The volunteers, the students themselves contribute a lot. It doesn't cost anything to be a part of it, but our training and our fellowships and the travel and the campaigns and tools, all those things do cost funding. Uh, we do have donors from the tech sector, always looking for more. Mm -hmm. um, but this here in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go to uh, Florence, Italy, wow. and go to the State of the Map Conference, oh my gosh. which is all the OpenStreetMap users all over the world. This is the global conference. And right after that, um, I'm really privileged to give the keynote for the FOS4G, which is the open source software for um, geospatial conference that happens right after that. That is awesome. Wow. And, and if we start planning now, the Geohawks can be at that conference next year. Absolutely. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm, hey, you got two weeks. You can get there. We got two weeks. <laughs> we'll hide in your suitcase. How's that? Oh, man. So this is a great time to talk about a quote that uh, I also saw that you uh, had, had provided. And it says, everything happens somewhere. I'm not sure where that came from, but but I, I love that. What's what's What does that mean to you? Well... It, it means that you can do so much with these tools and the, the not just the tools, but the concepts of, of geography. Um, you know, it's very versatile and it's something I think that it's even if our students are not using these tools to become land surveys or geospatial technology, whatever um, geographers like, like we like for them to become, they are still going to be that much more powerful by understanding the where um, of, of what is happening around them. I feel like, you know, we get our heads into our, our phones and we might forget, or we get into these, the, the, um, the visuals and you don't know really where you are and you're not really connecting in that way. But I think it's just an essential, um, fundamental thing that all of our students, our all whole populace, all, all the public could be much more powerful if they only could answer the question of where. There are places in the world where this stuff is illegal. It is illegal oh. to map. It is illegal to actually to, to use OpenStreetMap in Pakistan, for mm. example. We can't have yeah. a chapter there. We don't want to put our students at risk because it's so powerful to know where sure. and to have a sense of that. Yep. And if you're, uh, we have students that are um, sociologists, lawyers, um, bankers. You know, how much more powerful is your interest if you can also add that dimension of where? Because everything happens somewhere. Yeah, and it's so interesting you say that. We had a gentleman on, Rex Perry. I don't know if you know Rex. He's a local guy. Um, he is. He has been trying to develop an app um, to help underdeveloped countries establish a cadaster because there is no records of land ownership and, and that type of thing. And a massive, massive, huge undertaking. But it kind of goes along with what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I feel like the world could use a lot more of these kinds of skills and um, our institutions, there's low on capacity and mm -hmm. everywhere, even in the United States, we are suffering sometimes from lack of spatial data, as you know. Um, in our own research, we have to kind of create it sometimes mm. because, you know, the, it's, not, it's not the kind of information that you need. So we could use more people with those skills yeah. in all walks of life. For sure, for sure. Nick, you're, you're nodding your head. Do you have something or are you just, you just happy over there? This makes me so sad. I hear a lot that in, you know, middle school and high school, they're defunding geography programs left what? and right. The really? emphasis on geography is almost non-existent. And even to that degree, we were chatting just before the show and I mentioned, you know, living in um, San Marcos, Texas, uh, at Texas State. 
uh, and I'm friends with a, a PhD student there. And um, like that student really just wants to be a geography teacher, like literally wants to teach geography, not do GIS analysis. And I'm thinking to myself, like, gosh, like, how do you, where does that happen anymore? And I mean, you're part of a geography program. You'd be able to speak to it better than I would. Um, but like, just like we've lost, like we're in one hand, we're in a geospatial moment, as we've talked about on the show several times, and everything is getting linked to geography. But at the same time, we're de-emphasizing it in like the general public. And hmm. I just I can't reconcile that. Any thoughts? Like, how do we, you know, that I may, and, and maybe that's why I love the Geobus, right? The Geobus is a prime example of spearheading into the darkness and, and teaching people where matters. But like, how do we reconcile that where we're defunding that in school, but at the same time, everything nowadays is associated with it? Mm. Yeah, you've hit the million dollar question. Um, I think people have been struggling for many, many years with that. And there are a really dedicated group of um, geoeducators around, like Tim, um, like there in San Marcos, our, a friend, Michael Solom, uh, who I've worked with for many years. Um, there's institutions like the National Council for Geographic Education. There's all sorts of struggles, but we are so small. It's such a small community, really, to gain that much force and that much traction. I feel like that we're, you know, actually geography is only offered on, on about 10% of university campuses. Wow. Um, so it's just very small. And to kind of get beyond that. In other places of the world, I think it's it's possibly stronger. In Europe, I think they've got a lot of really strong programs. And so um, the average person on the street would have a better sense of what that is. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't think we've ever been able to get beyond that critical mass threshold to move the needle, despite a lot of really good efforts and really good examples. I feel like sometimes everybody just wants to rebrand geography, some like <laughs> super sexy term these days, but it's really just geography. Like we have all these crazy terms, but at the end of the day, it's still geography. It's true. Is there any chance? Now I know that there are a lot of universities that have GIS programs. Mm-hmm. Like GIS has absolutely taken off. Is there a chance that GIS has taken the place of these geography programs? I think that happens sometimes, or the GIS function would get um, housed within the engineering program instead of with the geography program, depending on how what the legacy of each individual university is. Sometimes mm-hmm. geography, because it is such a you know integrative kind of discipline, there's mm-hmm. history, which integrates over time, and then there's geography, which integrates over space. And there you go. And it's yeah. so broad, not every university can cover all that breadth. And so it will land in one place or the other. It might be in the humanities in one university. Mm-hmm. It might be in the social sciences in another, might be in the physical sciences in another. So kind of depending on where it has been, what that history of each institution, you might see the geospatial technologies, you know, housed in a different location in the university. Mm-hmm. I just think I mean, that it, per- it should be available to everybody, obviously. Sure. I'm a perfect example. So, you know, I've been teaching at ASU for about 13 years and I taught in the geography department of the graduate MAS GIS for quite some time. But my last four years, I've been in the landscape architecture program. So I teach GIS to landscape architects, architects and planners. Um, and it's a whole different world again. I mean, but, but yeah, I, I agree with everything she said. It's just an interesting place. There's a lot of GIS taking off. At, at least in the college level, because it's so interdisciplinary. But but even before you get into the world of STEM, like let's talk about a ninth grader or a tenth grader not understanding where their city is on a map. 
you know, like this is real world problems. Wow. If, if you can't understand your local neighborhood, you know, and, and part of, you know, for an example, my dissertation research was on understanding local communities and how uh, perceptions of safety and trust spatially impacted activity space. So where people moved in cities, this is pretty complex. But if a, if a person doesn't even understand spatially their neighborhood because they've never been asked to understand that, I feel like that's a detriment and that we're not being equitable, right? Like you're already starting the race behind if you can't put yourself on a map. Yeah. And do you think that's related to, you know, how technology goes and now you get in your car and you pull up on your phone where to go and you just follow those directions, but you mm. don't really know where you are. You just yeah. are told to drive this way and hang a right and then hang a left and you get there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I was thinking the same thing. It's like, you know, to go along with what Nick just said, you know, yet these kids have one of the most powerful mapping devices in the palm of their hand 24-7, you know. Yeah. What are you going to use it for? Yep, That's exactly. the real question, right? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, technology always evolves. Um, but, you know, we just really, I think, can't forget the, the human side of all of that. And um, if I do feel like that there's an opening, though, because you can see other places of the world through the maps. Even yeah. if you can't travel there, yeah. um, I feel like it can open up people's imagination. So at the same time where, you know, it could the same technology could be used to sort of blind you to what's going on in your own labor, local neighborhood and where's north and south, like... Yeah. It drives me crazy when people don't know where North and South is. But yeah. I, you know, think the same technology, if we can kind of wrap our head around it and put it in the right kind of design of programming, like what we're trying to do here, it could open up yourself to the world. With Youth Mappers, we have students in, at, when I was at Texas Tech, we had students being taught by kids from Bangladesh on how mm. to do this mapping because we, you know, we had a great opportunity to connect with them. Uh, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, yeah. you know, several years ago. We got online and did a mapathon together. We had people from Texas, from Kenya, from Uganda, from Nepal, all mapping Puerto Rico because our Puerto Rican chapter couldn't map because they didn't have electricity and their, you know, their building got damaged. So yeah. all online at the same time, kind of in solidarity to create something uh, in another part of the world. Hmm. And under the kind of understanding, if you if you do it right, so while I think we have to be careful about how we use that technology because it has a kind of a double-edged sword. Sure. Yeah. No question. Um, do, do you have something, Nick? I was just going to say, with that, I, I can sense the passion in your voice. Mm -hmm. What's something, like, what would you say, like, is the most rewarding thing? I mean, I, I'm sure you get rewarded left and right, but, you know, you, you just bled your soul uh, on, on the podcast, you know, and doing all these great things. So, yeah, what, what would you say is one of the most rewarding things in your line of research? Well, when I get to be sort of the geo-grandma, <laughs> when I see sort of a second-generation impact of somebody that I have um, supported to learn or grow, pass that on and pay it forward. Mm. Someone did that for me. I told you about my scholarship. If some, I don't even know who they were. Someone paid for a scholarship for me to study abroad. I will never be able to pay that back because I don't even know to whom. But I can yeah. just pay it forward. And when I see that happen and the next generation of paying it forward, that's just really rewarding. 
What a great answer. And with that, what I would, I want to give you an opportunity to do two different things. One, um, recognize your team. You can't do all this yourself, obviously, and kind of the importance that they play uh, in this process. And then, you know, maybe recognize one or two people that have made an impact in your life as it pertains to your career in uh, geospatial. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I feel like I'm at the Oscars, you know, where you have to say thank you to my agent. Uh, Well, Youth Mappers really could not run at all if it weren't for um, Marcella Ceballos, who is our managing director. She does the day-to-day managing in and out and so many communications with all of these students. So she's wonderful. Um, One of those second-generation people is our communications manager, who's um, Dara uh, Kari Nittleman, who was one a high school student on one of our programs and is now our <laughs> communications manager. That's great. Um, so those are wonderful people. And we are supported at, at George Washington University by Marie Price and Ryan Engstrom and Richard Hinton, who runs our validation hub uh, in at West Virginia University, Brent McCusker. Um, at the World Bank, we have Nula Cowan. At USAID, uh, the mastermind, who has been my colleague for so many years, with this program and many others is uh, Carrie Stokes, who is the director of the Geo Center at <laughs> USAID. And you want to hear a story, talk to her. She's wow. amazing. Um, Rory Nealon, um, um, Michael Crino, and then also Chad Blevins there. Uh, Jennings Anderson's is runs our data. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a wonderful club also at ASU. Sure. So people want to participate and learn more about what it's about. Locally, yeah. you can do that. Um, our website. <coughs> Go Devils. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our website has a list of all the universities with chapters, or you can start your own chapter. Mm, interesting. And then, uh, you know, again, I want to, I really want to acknowledge uh, all the team at uh, ASU2, um, Libby Wentz, our director, and our whole crew there. They're just really, really fabulous, uh, wonderful people who are very dedicated, public servants. Yeah. Really. Yep, I love this oh. stuff. And who are some people that, you know, made impacts on, on your career? Gosh, I get it every single day. <laughs> yeah, great um, answer. I just, every single day I'm really inspired by the things that, that um, people do and, and what they say. Um, I would say that most of my inspiration and comes in, I look at like recent minutes and mm. months, right? Mm. I, I'm not a person to reflect 30 years ago, 20 years ago, sure. although there's those people that have just made yeah. a huge difference, like uh, Dwayne Nellis, who was one of my mentors at um, Kansas State. But I get this inspiration by, um, like, the the youth mappers who are starting their new projects, mm. and they're, you know, saying the kinds of things that you want to hear to each other, right? It's kind of like when your kids, like you're teaching your kids, and yeah. they – they go and teach their brothers and sisters and you sure. hear them say, say those things and, and pass them along. Those are, that's where my inspiration comes from. Um, there's been people who have gone on to be National Geographic Explorers. Oh, wow. I just relish when I see what their accomplishments are. Yeah. United Nations Women's Group. Um, I had one of my students who started her own organization and foundation for environmental mm. um, conservation. So... Those are the kinds of things that I just that feed me their accomplishments every day, knowing that you're kind of um, having a small splash of, of push in, into, influence into that. on them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man, I can imagine how rewarding that's got to be. Very cool. Yeah. Um, 
So like what, what advice would you, you know, give a young person considering a career in, uh, you know, geography, geospatial, what have you? Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to go with what advice would I give to people in general? And I'll answer that first and then I'll talk about sure. students. Yeah, that's I think in general, yep. I try to do this and I like to tell people, be a good ancestor. Mm. Mm. And a young person told me that once. Interesting. That's that was solid. A, someone who mentored me, a young person who mentored be me. A Find a person ancestor. who's, if you do not have a young person who mentors you, yep. you're going to miss out on what's going mm. on for real. Do you that, hear that is Kent? well said because it's something we've been talking about. Yeah, a it's lot been a really. it's been a theme the last few months. Mm -hmm. It's like it's, surveying in a nutshell. You got to have a you know respect that surveyor ancestor that taught yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, right. for sure. And this this younger generation learns in a completely different way. They do. Um, it's it's amazing to me. It really is how fast they pick up on things and just how like they just they just go. Go, 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 yeah. go. You know, it's it's impressive. And, uh, it, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm humbled by it, to be honest with you. And and I would I try to encourage uh, our students to maintain that level of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because I think as you get older, I mean, maybe when you're young, maybe might be inspired, be motivated a little bit easier, more easily. But mm -hmm. um, keep the curiosity. That's yeah. what keeps us young, really, is to keep asking those questions and being okay when you don't always know the answers right away. Keep seeking those answers. That's what that's, what that's all about. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, gosh, I mean, I think that I've covered everything that I hoped we'd get to. Um, Sean, is there anything that you have any, uh, any final uh, questions or anything? I mean, I have one very basic question, and maybe it's just a little rud rudimentary, but... Is there any talk about bringing back Carmen San Diego? Oh, I haven't heard. Where in the Where world is, is she? Carmen San Diego? Oh I love that game. Oh my First god! I love to find time. Her. First, See, you have to find her, and then I don't know. Just Let's that's what I think about. Is her. that's great. <laughs> Hilarious. You remember there was even a TV show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Uh, How about you, Nick? Do you have any uh, final thoughts or questions? Oh my goodness! How much time do we have? <laughs> much as you need buddy a temporal question um favorite map oh my favorite map mm. oh, wow. aside um, from the avalanche mapping yeah that Fletcher. was beautiful but oh, i've yeah. been fascinated lately i don't even know if it's online anymore but um it's it was from the cooper center they had a racial dot map with one dot per person of the whole united states and you could zoom in and out and it was just oh. like really crazy visualization wow. i really love that i also love anything that new york times mappers puts out they are great visualizers yeah for sure um how much you patricia anything else you want to get out there oh my gosh you guys are really amazing for doing this i love that you're being so successful with the podcast and sharing the conversations so we appreciate that we appreciate you well thank you for saying that and it's uh because of great guests like yourself so um i think it's about it you guys uh, ready to wrap this one up? What about you, Kent? What's your favorite map? Yeah, yeah, you don't. You have to answer. Too. Yeah, you don't get away from what, that. What was your favorite map? You first. Oh man. Oh gosh. You know what? There's this guy. On, I mean, I don't know if I can pick. You know what? I do have a favorite map. It's personal to me. Um, it was given to me by a former men mentor, as a matter of fact, and it is a a survey from like God, 1810, and it's 
original, like the original hand-drawn survey that was in his family for a number of years. And he knew I was a surveyor, of course, and he was, it was time to get rid of it, whatever. And he reached out to me. He said, Ken, I have something I think you would be very interested in. And I met with him and he presented this to me and I had a tear in my eye. I mean, it was incredible because in my mind, it's a piece of history. Not only is it artwork and an unbelievable map, but it's a piece of history. So that is my personal favorite map. Um, Top that. Well, I, <laughs> it's not necessarily specific. I guess it's pretty broad, but I always just remember the first time I downloaded and started messing around with Google Earth. Mm. And I just loved how I could just scroll over, you know, roll the globe over and just zoom in until I found something. And yeah. then I found I got into this rabbit hole where mm. I would just keep going. I'm like, ooh, they're at the beach. And oh, look, yeah. the town's right there. And then, oh, look, look, this is what the buildings look like. And yep. four hours later, I'd got nothing done. I just messed around in Google Earth. I, I, I don't know. I, I still yeah. wish they could have the, they do it online now and it's a little different, but. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to mention it when you were talking about these different mapping tools. I'm just like, you know, Google Earth, one of the greatest like online mapping tools ever created. It's incredible. So much information to glean there. All right, folks. Well, let's uh, wrap this one up. Sean, you want to cue up the uh, outro music? Awesome. Thank you. Adding value, making friends. That's that's what we do here at the Geoholics. So much fun. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show or have any topical ideas, shoot us an email at info at thegeoholics.com. If you haven't already, visit our website and get signed up for our weekly email. You don't want to miss out on that. Ruben Blades, Primenio. I have no idea. I probably butchered that. Available everywhere. Until next time, everybody, be safe and healthy. And be a good ancestor. I'm going to use that one for a while. Thank you to our 2022 Friends of the Program, Advanced Geodetic Survey, AGSGPS.com, Airworks, airworks.io, Bad Elf, bad-elf.com, Cyanic Automation, getjobbook.com, Diamondback Land Surveying, diamondbacklandsurveying.com. Extreme Aerial Productions, extremearialproductions.com. Get Kids Into Survey, getkidsintosurvey.com. Mentoring Mondays, mentoringmondays.xyz. Monson Engineering, monsonengineering.com. Nettleman LC Prep, lcprep.com. North Star Surveying, northstarsurveying.com. ProStar Corporation, ProStarCorp.com, Safety Apparel, SafetyApparel.us, Topodot, New.Certainty3D.com, and finally Trimble Geospatial, Geospatial.Trimble.com.